Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with my new friend, Mark Groves. Mark is an incredibly brilliant human being in the realm of love, connection, relationships, human sexuality, romance, and things of the sort. He is the host of the Mark Groves Podcast. He is the author of his latest book called Liberated Love, Release Codependent Patterns and Create the Love You you desire. This conversation gets very deep into conflict resolution, not just in romantic partnership, but in any form of communication. Uh, it also gets into codependency, attachment theory, we get into some stuff around nervous system regulation, how to get your nervous system to come back into balance after you get a little stirred up. I think this is an incredibly valuable conversation. I think you guys are going to get a ton from it. Thank you for subscribing. So you get each week's episodes. Thank Thank you for leaving us reviews. I read every one and they warm my heart and uh, I really genuinely appreciate it. Uh, that is it. That is all. Let's get to it with my guy, Mark Groves. Mark Groves. So, hey, when you do all that breath, you're not hyper oxygenated, right? It's like you have more CO2. Is that right? You actually are oxygenating. You're dumping yeah. CO2 and that's what we were talking about in, on your podcast as you're yeah. hyperventilating you're dumping co2 you're you're actually oxygenating your blood uh, and so when you are going through and doing that something that's interesting if you're doing like like long hyperventilations you know, like you're doing some type of tumor thing or holotropic or Wim Hof, whatever you're doing you're actually pulling blood from the brain and into the appendages into the periphery yeah. and so you're kind of stimulating like a stress response you're stimulating like the sympathetic response because the only time if you were to breathe like that mm-hmm. it would be mimicking some scenario that's pretty darn stressful mm-hmm. you know you're up high high elevation you're up the top of the mountain you're you're exhausted there's a lion in the room you're in a fight you know you're in a, a fight with your partner your spouse your whoever right and suddenly you feel your heart started going. You might start to notice your 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 uh, your respiration starts to increase, and you'll literally start shunting blood away from the organs, away from the brain, into the appendages to get ready to go. And then when yeah. you're doing the breath holds, you're doing the opposite of that. So you're taking your blood chemistry and your whole your whole system, your whole autonomic nervous system, through this whole pendulum swing into kind of hard sympathetic. And then backing it into the other side of the pendulum swing into kind of hard parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that going through breath work can make you feel pretty good because it's it's like a autonomic stretch. You're taking kind of like if you do yoga, you're stretching all of your your muscles. With yeah. the breathing patterns, you're kind of stretching your the chemistry of your blood and your your whole autonomic nervous system. And then you get Shit, done with that. Like you're like, that. oh cool, like we stretch it out. Yeah, I feel like uh you know, after you do breath work, you just feel we got clarity. Let's fucking let's go. It changes things. <laughs> yeah, it does. It feels so nice. And especially because I'm looking at you sitting in a jungle. And now yeah. I even though I'm sitting in a city, I'm like, <laughs> oh man, I feel like I'm sitting in a jungle now. Well, so this brings me to what wasn't gonna be my first question. I didn't really have a first question. <laughs> yeah, let's get to uh, it. But this brings me to my first question. When you're in conflict. with your partner or a person in general and you feel yourself becoming dysregulated and reactive and you start 
tapping into some of the John Gottman four horsemen might become contemptuous yeah. or you might become defensive or maybe your response is stonewalling or maybe it's criticizing your partner who you care and love and cherish. Um, or maybe you don't do that. But if you do, if you're like me and you have a tendency of, of becoming maybe a little reactive, um, how does one identify that? How does one work with that within themselves? And how does one recover that to find clarity and refine love towards their partner and towards themselves? Man, if we could figure that out uh, as individuals, then we could figure it out <laughs> en masse and then we could solve <laughs> the challenges of the world. Because you think about collectively, as we move as human systems, we, our nervous systems are so dysregulated. So, you know, it's it's such a great question because I think before we even ask the question as individuals, it's usually because the result of our reactivity has caused um, d disruptions in our relationships. Uh, conflict that just seems to repeat itself and relationship patterns that seem to repeat themselves and not just within our own relationships, but we then start to see if we look up the family tree that this same uh, behavior of how to navigate conflict is, is living itself out with me. Um, or I just happen to do the opposite as some sort of compensatory strategy to never be like my parents. And then I just become the opposite, which isn't healthy. Yeah. So that first part is the recognition of the results you create relationally. Because, you know, then we don't have to look far to see, as you said, the four horsemen, uh, which for those of you listening, it's um, there are four behaviors that are predictive of divorce if when done in high quantity. But I think the interesting thing when I first learned about the four horsemen is I was like, damn, I do that shit. I've done that is that it's normal to have protective mechanisms to, uh, try to maintain some sense of connection to ourselves, to the other person. It's just the problem is that usually the, those mechanisms that are dysfunctional communication wise, they're built on top, uh, you know, their intention is to try to protect us, but they actually just repeat the patterns of harm in communication. So the first, yes, recognizing how you how you show up in communication. And then I think pathologizing it is important. I don't think it's necessary. You don't have to know where your defensiveness comes from. You don't have to know where your stonewalling comes from to know that you don't want to do it again. But I'd say you probably don't have to look very far to see that's probably your family system. And, and then it's really... There's the skill set part of it, which is learning how to structure language and how to master that. There's the nervous system part of that, which for me, meditation and things like breath work have allowed that that moment between the stimulus, my partner criticizing me and my response getting defensive, that space now is much longer. One second feels like three or four seconds. And, you know, I've been thinking about when you're in it, it's really hard to say right now I feel activated, you know, it's, that's, but that's actually where we hope to get to is actually to the place that there's the observation of the activation and then a choice about the behavior, but you have to have the skill set of the new behavior too. Yeah. You can, you can say it, but it doesn't necessarily change it. Right. Right. Because I can know you're I still get defensive, but what's mind. the solution? Yeah. You know, and, and there are antidotes to each of those. So like criticism is really starting sentences with like, you always, you never. Behind every criticism is an actually a desired behavior. It's just that we usually learn that criticism is a way to create connection. So if we had criticizing parents, we watched our mom or our dad constantly nag on the other person. Um, criticism, the antidote to it is is saying things like, 
hey, in my experience, so you're now taking ownership for your own experience, you're leaving space for someone else's experience. When this happens, this is how I feel. So there's I language. Criticism pairs perfectly with defensiveness or stonewalling. Defensiveness, I'm a recovering defender. So like for me, I get defensive. And defensiveness at its core is really trying to protect delicate self-worth, low self-worth, like we don't want if someone gives me feedback and and I correlate their feedback to my self-worth, then I won't be able to hear it. What you're saying means I'm not a good person. Oh, I let you down. Oh, there I go again. And because I haven't been able to look at maybe the ways I let myself down, the ways I haven't shown up, I'm, I'm reacting actually to that, not to them. And the, the antidote to defensiveness is, it's a tough one, man. It's like eating your own shoe. A really good way to start is is to say, I can see some truth in what you're saying. Oh, that's a, it's such a beautiful reception of uh, what is being shared because there usually is some small amount of truth or maybe a large amount of truth in what someone's saying to us. And we're talking about all of this out of the context of abusive relationships. Those are totally different cat. But with this, it's like, hey, you're late. And when, you, when you're late, this is how it impacts me. And oh, you want to talk about late? Let's talk about that time, right? So defensiveness yeah. really is about raising the level of the uh, of the conflict, but also flipping it. Um, contempt, I mean, contempt is the greatest predictor of divorce. The greatest predictive behavior of divorce is eye rolling. Uh, and I remember teaching that at a workshop and someone rolled their eyes in the first row like, oh yeah, okay. And I'm like, divorced. You know, like it's, it's interesting. We don't see hierarchy. Contempt is really creating hierarchies. So it's it's the, making a face of disgust at our partner. You see contempt in very long relationships that have not navigated hurts. The ruptures have not been repaired. And so it's just this build up and build up. And in the data, contempt is actually hard to rescue a couple from mm. because there's so much build. I think it takes a really skilled therapist or coach because there's so much um, atonement that needs to happen. Yeah. And the partner who has continuously, let's say, been hurt, they have to want to. And I'd say there's such a deep fracture of trust that that can be really hard to come back from. It's possible, but it's challenging. And the last one, stonewalling, is like, hey, shutting down, withdrawing, ghosting, hanging up the phone, leaving the room. If you look at at the core of that behavior, it's really an inability to co-regulate from a nervous system perspective. If you think about criticism, um, there's an inability, usually where these behaviors kind of stack on what we would call like anxious attachment or avoidant attachment. So like anxious people who really chase or that maybe take the pursuer role in relationship, they have an inability to self-regulate. So they're pursuing as a way to try to regulate with another person. Avoidantly attached people, people who distance, shut down, stonewall, which tends to be more male. Uh, and that's developmental, you know, like the ways that we're shaped emotionally and the way society treats us, the way, you know, we um, navigate emotion, uh, we have a harder time co-regulating. Yeah. Like it's a lot safer for me to be an island than, you know, to share that space with someone else. So ideally to heal stonewalling, if that is something that you listening, you, you struggle with, it's actually to, to try to take less time from the withdrawal, you know, because someone might be like, I can't talk right now. I don't want to, they leave really in a, in a relationship that's looking to grow from that. They would say, Hey, I'm going to go for an hour and I'm going to come back. 
Yeah. And the rule is, is that you have to make it, it can't take longer than 24 hours because usually the person who's being left in that moment, they probably have an abandonment wound. And so their growth is to let you go. Your growth is to come back. And uh, the reason we say no longer than 24 hours is because otherwise you'll be in a session 10 years later <laughs> and you'll bring it up because some people will never come back to the subject, right? I used to do that when I was younger. Be like, we'll talk about it later. Never, you know. Yeah, I find having the set time guidelines very helpful because it creates something to, to hang on to when it's yeah. just a nebulous, like, I need time. To me, that's very challenging. I've oscillated, I think, the inverse of, of your oscillation and the whole, like, attachment theory stuff, where I was just very generally disconnected from being open to relationship and not even knowing that. I, I was kind of curious if I was gay or what it was. I was just emotionally numb and disconnected, not like willing yeah. to myself to a, to a, another partner. Um, and so I guess that would be, you know, very avoidant, avoidant to the point mm -hmm. of like not even being available to like start something essentially beyond yeah. you know, a few dates. And then that shifted, the pendulum swung to anxious where I need that person to feel, you know, well, and if that person disappears, suddenly all this different stuff of, you know, abandonment and all of that starts to come up in me. And I just become pretty much a completely dysregulated mess until connection is established. But coming from that anxious place, um, which again, isn't like an identification of who I am. It's just a, a tendency that I exhibit. Yeah, exactly. Just like, just like any person. But having the, the safety and structure of, I love you. I'm here for you and I will be back in this amount of time to me that as a, as a kind of like, you know, recovering anxious person, that's been something that's been very supportive for me, actually really mapping out very specific guidelines and sticking to those. Yeah. For couples, thing? that's so important. Yeah. Because I, what we're really talking about is agreements and at the right. basis of what makes couples succeed or not is a failure to be clear about agreements, you know, things like are that are obvious kids drugs you know marriage not whatever those those things are like deal breakers but like how are we going to navigate ruptures how are we going to navigate challenges how are we going to navigate compromise because these are all things that when you get into it you know it's like one of those things couples can do when they're in the height of conflict because that's not when your brain's working we know our critical thinking is out the window when we're triggered because our prefrontal cortex doesn't, we don't have access. As you were saying, the blood going to the extremities, it's not going yep. to the brain. Yep. Brain's not like, let's decipher what's best right yeah. now. You're either ready to fight or stonewall or, yeah. um, or freeze, dis right? disengage entirely, like turn in, turn into a, you know, play possum. Yeah, exactly. So you've got, it, it really is up to the couple to come up with, let's say, what is a, like a safe word or like, hey, we're just at that place right now. And I just want to call for a pause. And it's because I love us. And when a couple's not done that before, that can actually be pretty destabilizing in and of itself because the, the pattern of the relating and the way we handle conflict, we can become addicted to it because it's familiar. You know, sometimes conflict can be the way that we source that our partner cares, even though that can be totally, yeah. um, in, you know, logically inversed. Uh, so I think there's this really important aspect of like, you, you've got the language part that we're navigating, but then we have the nervous system part that's operating at the base and all this, 
this work that we're now I'd say is is so much more popularized, like breath work, like meditation, like movement. These all contribute to that, to that ability, like cold water exposure. I mean, what a brilliant way to put your body into a place where it is saying you're going to die, yeah, but you're not going to die. And so it's yeah. actually that ability to observe that your body thinks it's going to die. You're able to create a space and say, I'm not going to, I'm going to endure. I remember Tony Robbins years ago saying the reason that he does cold water exposure is because he doesn't negotiate with fears that aren't real. And I always thought that was such an interesting way to begin to see that that is the gym. Like it seems like it's like cold water bro. I live in Austin. No offense, but there are a lot of people cold plunge in Austin. Um, It's kind of like the funny Instagram creator they make fun of. And I'm like, meanwhile, I'm watching it while I'm cold plunging. You know, it's, (laughs) I can appreciate it, but it's like, there's actually so much truth to that, that stress that's being created on your body. That's that's translating. that's the reason cold cold plunge like content does well. It's because it, it, it invokes this carnal response within a person. Yeah. And people are, are craving authenticity and they're craving emotion. And so a part of it other than like, oh, it's weird and cool, but like that's something that people the reason that people post themselves in cold plunges is typically it gets a lot of views. And you're like, oh, cool. Right. Like that's the, you know, and, and I'm, you know, it's a virtue signaling. I do hard things. I'm a part of the Joe Rogan club, like whatever the thing is, the <laughs> club, whatever. Uh, but a part of that as well is I think that that, like th- that, th- the inevitable emotiveness that comes out of a person when you're, <gasps> when you're shocked right. like that, yeah. it's like, oh, and the, the human is, is, it's like magnetized to that. You know, it's a similar totally thing of, of, I have a, I have a friend uh, called Jaggers who has a company called Somatic Breathwork. Wait, Steven? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, I know. He's, he's freaking dope, dude. Yeah. And so his, his TikTok blew up and that's why they now have this really, you know, big, successful breathwork, you know, empire because they were, they started posting videos of people going through those like cathartic experiences and they're, you know, they're, they look wild, but they get millions of views and I it's, know you know, that. you can be exploitive of that, which would be problematic. But what I think that that indicates from like the, like a human, like cultural level is we just, we crave emotion. We crave authenticity. And when you put the human in those extreme situations, you can't help, but take any kind of masks off and you just, you just see those deeper the parts real. of the self come up, which sometimes looks ugly or scary or gross or whatever, but we're, we're magnetized by it because we really love truth. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think there's something, you know, the pursuit of perfection is, is, I mean, usually that's a wounding pursuit anyways, you know, like if I'm good enough, I'm perfect enough. Finally, I'll be loved. Finally, my dad will notice me, whatever it is. But it's like, if the root of how we seek success is from wounding, which is usually where we start, it's like the root of our motivation for change usually comes from pain, um, mm-hmm. from not enoughness. But yep. at some point it has to flip from trying to fix myself to actually I'm whole and I'm expanding myself. Yep. Otherwise, the pursuit of personal growth is actually just the reinforcing of a self-identity that I'm yep. a problem. And I think when, because social media has really created so many perceptions of you know, I got a Lamborghini, I got a perfect life, I've got a perfect everything. Um, I think we're tired of it. You know, not that I ever really liked that part, although I've yep. never driven a Lamborghini, they look nice. But I'm like, 
I think we really, the superficiality of life is, is so, it doesn't connect on, on like a cellular level, like a, a biological cellular, you know? Yeah, and I think it's like food what without you're nutrition. Saying, it's like a car, it's like a cardboard cut out of a hamburger. So true, hey. It's like the fucking uh uh what are the pop tart of <laughs> of, yeah. of of connection. But it's interesting because you know, we're connected through technology, so there's so many beautiful things with all tools, but like all tools that hit you know, no dopamine receptors, etc., and and really trigger things like self-worth and belonging that we can instantly fall down a trap. And so, you know, I think more recently I've just been playing with this idea, like truth is the ultimate algorithm. Like that really is it. It's like, we crave community. Look how many people are making jokes about getting farms and communities and growing their own food. Those aren't jokes. Those are, you know, our bodies being like, please more, please more, not more lab grown meat. Yeah. Not more Tinder, you know? I have, so I think maybe f- for me and maybe for other people, I think perhaps one of the most like meaningful questions I could ask would be how to get to the root of the cyclical pattern that couples may experience of fighting conflict and then everything is cool for a day, two days, three days, and then you're fighting conflict about the exact same root thing. And then might be a little, the symptom might be a little bit different or the reason might be a little bit different and just going through this cycle. And you mentioned the the word atonement. Uh, How does a, a, in a relationship, how do you truly get to the root of atonement for past trusts being broken, for example, or past um, moments of maybe contempt, which ultimately I think comes back to, again, like losing trust. Mm -hmm. How do we actually extract some of the um, some of the bits that are, are, are we're maybe like blind to within our relationship to be able to actually get to the root of like what are we actually fighting about because I know we both love each other right. but yet we seem to slip back into this reactive state and be you know babbling and squabbling about things that neither of us really care about that much it's almost like we're like possessed yeah. and I <laughs> so feel true. like I feel like I feel like what that typically probably is is there's something or some things from the past that haven't been addressed and we kind of just walk past it and we think we're good because, you know, we go on a trip, we're having fun, you know, we go to a theme park, like that was great. We had great sex, but we still haven't actually addressed those roots. Like how does a person, how does it within relationship, how do we start to identify the potential problematic roots and how do we start to go through and, and, you know, be able to weed said roots? Well, you know, usually we would come into connection with a partner from a place of seeking to heal something that's unhealed. You know, we especially that's that what I'm saying is obvious when we see that someone's drawn to unavailable people or like someone's drawn to someone who just can't choose them. Someone's drawn to people who are in relationships. Like these are all obvious that we're playing out the fact that someone's not available to us, which is usually from our childhood. But where it looks maybe a little different in romantic relationship where we're choosing our partner is as you're saying, like we love each other, but yet we're fighting about the same stupid shit. And sometimes it's not even, you know, it's not about the wet towel on the bed, even though sometimes it is about that, but it's actually, or it's not because you left the toilet seat up again, although that can be funny. It's what it's really about is like, I don't feel like I matter to you. I don't feel 
like I'm important. Exactly. So I would say that if you ask somebody the question, what did you want most as a child and not get? And the answer for most people will be some iteration of like, I didn't feel understood. I didn't feel important. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel chosen. I didn't feel cared for. It'll be some version of that. I didn't feel like you choose me, that my parents chose me. I felt abandoned. You know, I really wanted someone who would be there for me. What will happen is we will be unconsciously drawn to someone who does that to us. And we will be uncon- We will be their unconscious draw. We wound them in a similar way. And we'd say it was like, you're, you seek someone who wounds you in a similar way to a parent who wounded you the most. There used to be a saying like, you marry your opposite sex parent. No, you don't. You, you tend to be in relationship with someone who is similar to the, that person you share the most wounds with. Now, that could look like, let's say, when I was young, my dad left. And so I could be drawn to people who work all the time, long distance, um, like that kind of thing. But it could also show up that I never want to have distance with anyone again. I never want anyone to leave. So I'll choose someone who smothers me, who controls, who's overwhelming. So we still haven't found the center point, which at the core of all relationships, there's two things going on. One is that we are always asking the question unconsciously. If I need you, will you be there for me? That question is happening in every type of relationship we have. Am I safe to be myself? Will you be here when things are hard? And I will probably test you on that. If I don't trust it, I'll test you. Yeah. Especially if I've been let down previously, Hmm. you know, especially if, if we get into the deeper weeds of that, if I don't see you keeping your word to yourself, I won't trust that when you choose me, you're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. There's a lack of trust because you don't have the integrity of your own word. This is where partnership is so beautiful because you know, this is where our partner could say, I don't, you don't even keep your word with yourself, which is one of the most painful reflections. I think, especially as men, it's like, Oh Lord, because that is all we got. I mean, that's all, all humans have, but being reflected that you don't keep your word to yourself, which the negotiation we often make with that is like, well, if I say I'm going to do something tomorrow and I don't do it, I'm the only person who knows. Like that doesn't hurt anybody, but it does. It hurts yourself. What it does is on a deeper level, you don't trust that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to show up, which is like, if I have a hard time saying no around connections around, let's say an example of like, I have a hard time saying to no to men who aren't good for me or women who aren't good for me. When someone who's good for me comes around and I choose them, I won't have access to my full yes, because my yes still has a caveat to it because I don't know my no. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when I look at like how we orient relationship from this place of like seeking to heal something, when we can see that the relationship is this container that can be the place that we liberate ourselves from inherited patterns, then now the frictions we experience, what's that? It's like spiritual practice. Yeah. Because now the frictions in the relationship are actually material to be worked with. Yeah. Imagine if I said this to myself at 20. I'd have been like, get the fuck out of here. Like, this is material to work with. She wants to talk all the time. Like, da, 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 da. 
because we don't, who teaches us this? Like this is what you got to learn because you go through it and you're like, yep. wow, why, why am I not good at relationships? Why does my partner not trust me? Why can't I seem to be committed to anything, to anyone? Why am I afraid of commitment? You know, oh, because you're a man. No, it's so much deeper than that. It's always so much deeper than that. Yeah, something, why Why were you afraid of, of commitment? Because I think that's something that's very common with people. And I think that there's there's certain layers, something that I experienced that I think probably resonates with um, some iteration of, you know, past you or maybe still parts of present or, you know, I don't know if that stuff ever like completely goes away. Maybe it does, doesn't. Um, but what's at the root of a fear of deeper commitment, particularly for a man? Because I think that there can be, you graduate, you know, I've graduated to different levels. Yeah. You know, at one point, fear of commitment would be like, I don't want to, you know, call you my girlfriend. You know, that would be yeah, like, yeah. that's that's where it stops. I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then eventually, you know, the higher level of commitment would probably be like children, you know, marriage, things of the sort. And then there's, you know, iterations of commitment beyond yeah. that. What's at the root of fear of commitment? Well, you know, the, there's a saying that the greater the commitment, the greater the uh, amplification of what needs to be brought forward. Mm -hmm. You know, the saying's more fancy and rhymes or something like that, but that's essentially it, which yeah. is that let's say just for example, I might be afraid just on a very superficial level. I might be afraid of committing to something because it's not something I actually want to commit to. So we're just not owning that. We're not claiming that. Yeah. So there's like the innate intelligence that we're not listening to, but I'd say that at the root of not knowing, um, or not being able to choose commitment is because we don't trust ourselves with commitment. So I don't trust that I'm going to be able to hold on to you. I don't trust that I'm going to be able to hold on to myself. When I've seen intimate relationship done, even by my, either by myself or by people I observed, it led to pain, infidelity, da, 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 abandonment, yeah. rejection, hurt, abuse. So if I can control the depth of intimacy I can handle, then... I won't get back to the outcome that I'm afraid of. You know, what's ironic about relationship is that the very thing that we're avoiding, the pain, the, the replaying of a story, is actually where the very thing we desire lives. Yeah. And when you think about commitment, commitment is, is it can be a prison too right? Like if I say I'm committed to you forever in this moment, that might actually, I mean, I don't actually think that can be possibly true anyways, because you never know what life is going to bring. But you can be true that it, I'm committed to you now. Yeah. Now, I think for humans, that's hard because it's like my wife and I are, are married. In our previous iteration of our relationship, we broke up. But in that breaking up, we discovered through the ending of that relationship, which was done with grace and love, that the container of the relationship could change, but we still loved one another. Yeah. That if it was in my wife's highest good that she needed to go somewhere, who am I to get in the way of that? What am I gonna tell her she can't? And then now we have someone who doesn't choose to wanna be there, they have to be there. You know, so, um, at the root of the fear of commitment, though, is I have people finish the sentences. If I love people, they. If I let people love me, they. When I love people, I. 
Now there's the romantic answers to that. I let them love me. I love them with all my heart. But I'd say at the deeper, there's usually an answer like, I lose myself. They hurt me. They leave me. They lie to me. They betray me. And so when we can actually finish that sentence, honestly, if we have repeated patterns that keep showing up or repeated fights, um, then what happens is, is we can finally see the pain we're trying to avoid. And what that usually means is there's unintegrated knowledge from the previous pain. So there's like unintegrated wisdom from that. Like if I was betrayed, then I need to look at all the ways I betrayed myself before the betrayal. Because usually external betrayals like infidelity, things like that, they usually occur shortly or long after we left ourselves, compromised ourselves, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, Which one thing I want to... Which frustration is coming from. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's like one thing I want to say about the repeated patterns language-wise in conflict is that a real simple way to look at how you navigate conflict is to just finish the sentence. When you do this, it makes me do this, which makes you do this. And it might keep going on, but it would be like, when you get upset, I get defensive and then you leave, which hurts me. And so we're like able to see what is our cycle? Like what's the cycle of how we usually play out conflict? And it's usually something like one person pursues, the other withdraws, which makes the other person more inflamed and makes the other person withdraw. Yeah. And so if you think about it, all you have to do is disrupt one of those things. And if you look at the, at the deeper part of whatever the de desired way you handle the conflict, which is like withdrawing or, or criticizing or both, is that unmet need that you have from childhood. Yeah. And so yeah, just what, how you orient to it is what we want to change. Yeah. I wonder, I'm really interested in communication and conflict in particular, because I feel like that's like one of the, you know, the, the trickier realms of communication. It's easy to, to like talk to Agreed. somebody at the supermarket or something, you know, and it's like everyone, I, I'd imagine, you know, the John Winelands of the world and the, the views of the world and, and the, you know, all, all the folks likely when they actually get into something that hits on some of those like primary caregiver disruptions, patterns that, that have come up from, you know, childhood or a long time ago. Right. I'd imagine those people still have the, the, potential to lose their shit. I mean, I can't speak for John, but I could say, yeah, like there's, I just had a kid. <laughs> you yeah. want to, you want to amplify what's unresolved. That'll do it. What's come up for you in that? Well, you know, I thought I'd cleaned up my communication pretty well, but I found as I was more tired, more emotionally depleted, my defensiveness got greater. Yeah. Um, moving from two to three. So like, moving from a couple to being a family. And then there, there's not really a lot of conversation about the experience that the father has in that, because all of a sudden now you have the mother with the child and they're bonded and cuddling and breastfeeding and all the things. And there's uh, a part of like for the father and I'll speak for myself. I've witnessed it with some other fathers too, where it's like, Hey, I, I hello. Like, can we cuddle? Yeah. And of course I get connection with my son and I get connection with my wife, but there was like a longing, like a missing of that. 
And yeah. my wife and I talked about it because I, I felt like, man, I got to bring this forward to the relationship. Like uh, there's a lot of missing here. And I also turned towards men who have had experience with it, but that I definitely found like, am I still important coming up? Um, do they need me? Yeah. You know, this like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which has been beautiful, but men, it's definitely, I've realized like through having a kid that I'm back in the like depths of the gym. Like I'm learning yeah. the squat again. I take a moment and share about one of the few supplements that I will actually bring with me while traveling. And that is magnesium, particularly from Mag Breakthrough. The reason that I really value Mag Breakthrough is they contain all seven different forms of magnesium, as opposed to picking one specific one or taking one with a couple. There are seven different forms and Mag Breakthrough has all of them. I find them to be invaluable for sleep, uh, for relaxation, for muscular recovery, uh, it's supportive for digestion. Uh, magnesium itself is supportive for 300 plus biochemical reactions in the body and 75% of the population is deficient in this because we're just not getting it from our soil. I genuinely stand behind Mag Breakthrough. I've been a fan of them for years. I think you guys will get a ton of value from them. And if you wanna get the 10% off on your purchase, you can go to buyoptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align. You can use the promo code align10 for 10% off. Yeah, it seems something that's been helpful for me in navigating said like conflicts or, or, or you know, one of the bigger ruptures would be like a, like a breakup. Yeah. Uh, going through a past breakup, something that I learned was... I didn't have strong male community. Mm. And so I put a lot of my emotional weight on my partner. And when that got ruptured or taken away, it was like, I was like completely brought to my knees. I was, I was yeah. totally devastated by it. And it forced me to, to have to start to create some infrastructure around other relationships, particularly with men outside of just like, you know, seeking, you know, validation through, chicks being attracted to me or something of the sort, but actually having meaningful community with other men to be able to have conversations. Like I would have previously put almost all of that bandwidth into my partner. Like this is you know who I have these conversations with, but to be able to actually as a, as a man bridge the gap of being able to create, um, you know, open heart centered vulnerable conversations with other men and being seen and heard for people listening. I'm doing like quotations for all this because yeah. a lot of like the <laughs> new age jargon language yeah, I don't yeah, love, yeah. although it's, it's hashtag, like accurate, hashtag. it's accurate, it's accurate and works. It is. Yeah. Um, it seems like community within the peripheral community around a relationship seems to support the relationship. Yeah. There's something I to agree. that. Yeah, for me, that was big was healing a lot of stuff with men, like trust with men that I could be vulnerable and around men that I could share emotion with them that I had to heal, you know, long before becoming a father. But yeah, there's, you know, and I remember reading this research that was talking about how um, women initiate divorce far more than men. And it's usually about two years from the time the the woman has expressed her concern to the time she leaves, which of course is because the concern is not being heard and, right. and changes aren't being engaged. We never got to the root. We just kept on kind of piling. 
Yeah, and you might still, there was like never a moldy listen. layer from last <laughs> November 2020. Right. There was like this. <laughs> right. There was this. There was a ripple. There was a twist, and we just kept on stacking and building. But she never quite let it go. <laughs> right. And, or he never and, quite let it go. Yeah, and he never quite listened. He never. She maybe didn't feel understood. Maybe the yeah. behavior changed and get engaged. I mean, we're not talking about people who. Like I'm talking about the average relationship where people don't have these conversations, you know, and and women have a, a lower tolerance for relational dysfunction or relational challenges. Hmm. They have a more accurate barometer of the health of the relationship. But that's not because they're annoying or overtly sensitive. It's because if you think about it, a woman's safety was actually predicated on the emotional stability of a relationship. Um, because they can die, they can be abused, they can be, right? And there's a power difference. On top of that, if you think about the vulnerabilities of pregnancy and not wanting a partner to leave during that time, these are all real biological things that exist in our experience. So, you know, there's, but what was interesting, I remember in the part of that conversation about the research was that about 60 something percent of women, when they have an emotional challenge, they turn towards their female friends for- Um, men, it's about 60-something that turn towards their partner. So when a relationship right. ends, men lose their social support system. And and that's huge. I mean, men are more likely to get remarried men, you know, quickly compared to a woman. And this makes sense because we don't tend to have a lot of social uh, support about emotional things. Yeah. And I think we're learning that. And I think, you know, men's groups are popping up. And when people are like, men need to heal, I'm like, damn, it's happening en masse. I know, I know so many good men, like so many incredible men. And I know so many incredible women, but they're, it's like everyone is turning towards this, this desire to heal and change. And a lot of that needs to be done in relationship. And, you know, I was going to say that, like, I'd say the reason that couples end up breaking up is because they failed to create two individuals within the relationship. Because usually what happens right. when we get like, I'm sure people would know, quote unquote, the honeymoon phase, which really is like the elation, the hedonic, you know, excitement, everything's new, which, which is why if you go on a first date and you take someone on a roller ca- coaster, they'll associate you with the rush from the roller coaster and you'll probably get a second date. You know, it's yep. a, and you see this with some couples is that the moment that the reality of their connection comes forth, what needs to be processed, they then do something exciting, go on a trip, have a kid, get engaged, you know, and what they're really trying to do is meet their needs, which are things like safety, security, understanding with wants, right? Have a kid, get engaged, right? Because these give this new exciting thing, but eventually the excitement comes back down to baseline. And so when you see the honeymoon phase come to an end, in in the world of psychology, they call it the fall from grace. Um, that's Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt. They talk about that of like you're now in this space where you turn to more like amicable love, like more friendship based love. And I'm sure Esther Perel's work is pretty famous to people listening. She talks about how love and desire are often at odds. Like love wants closeness, safety, and right. and desire wants in distance and mystery. And I really was thinking about that. I'm like, well, I think at the core of the reason that we, let's say, stop having desire for our partners that are long-term is because we no longer see them as a mystery. 
And we often also blame them for losing ourselves. And so I think really to bring back in intimacy, connection, and mystery and growth is to actually use the container of the relationship as the most powerful space to grow two individuals, to bring both people most alive, bring both people to, both people to the pursuit of their dreams, their passions, their purpose. And when you use the relationship as that, because you hear so many people break up and then they're like, and then I went on a trip and then I finally went back to school and then I finally did this. It's like, why the hell aren't you doing that? in your relationship yeah and I, I think we often get afraid that our partner will grow away from us so we don't support their growth which yeah. that's very selfish yeah and i've done it what what is the what was as you're as you're talking i'm thinking it seems like conflict within a relationship is could be related to perhaps like expressing some symptom of disease yeah, so suddenly I'm expressing I have acne or suddenly I'm holding on to body fat or suddenly I have inflammation yeah. or achy joints and conflicts also tied into all of that, inhibiting the immune system and inflammation and mm -hmm. you know, all of the things. So there, it actually is just a one-to-one -one relationship. And there's an analogy <laughs> of, I believe there's, there's like a functional medicine approach to seeing like, ah, there's conflict here. And at the root of that, there is a, a unmet, um, need of feeling trust in the relationship or there's an unmet need of feeling you know cared for unmet need of feeling committed to unmet need of feeling like any of those things and we'll keep on fighting until we actually meet those deeper core needs is that if a if a, if a couple is in a cycle of fighting would that functional medicine approach work to apply to relationships yeah. i think so because the thing and that then you're how do seeking, we and then how do we diagnose sorry. no 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 sorry i'm interrupting you and yeah. then how do we diagnose and get in and start to you know it's kind of the same same questions earlier but but getting specific with those my, my girlfriend's coming out from a combo ceremony i'm in costa rica and i'm a cliche person from austin <laughs> texas <laughs> you're hi, not hi. in a cold plunge right now <laughs> see you guys um, nothing yeah. like people who just did combo coming out which yeah, I yeah, yeah, exactly. that, that doesn't sound uh, like fun uh, the, so the, at the basis of that yeah the functional medicine approach would work because remember I was saying earlier that we're like drawn to someone who triggers us in a, in a way that's familiar that needs to be resolved Yeah. whether we're in a relationship or not that way that we pursue partnership, like I finally want someone to see me, understand me, love me, we have to then give that to ourselves. So even in partnership, I have to look for how do I give myself understanding? How do I give myself safety? How do I give myself security? Which I'm not bypassing the very real need of that in relationship. Yeah. But usually if I don't trust you, I don't trust me. Usually if I want you to choose me, I don't choose me. So I'm like subcontracting what I need to give to myself to you. Yeah. And that makes it so you have to still be around because I need you. Yeah. But what I'm saying is you start to transition to sourcing it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is you've got, you source it for yourself and then now you're not orienting to relationship from a place of needing that to be fixed, but actually feeling uh, the space of the relationship is a place of healing and not a place of wounding. Yeah. So the specificity of it is about looking for like, hey, when you're in those, what do you really need from them? 
you know, what do you really need from the your partner in that moment? You can ask them for it. I mean, I think one of the hardest things we have to do is actually ask for a need to get met. It might yep. get met. And then who are we when our needs get met? Yeah. We have to change our identity too. Like all this requires that. How do we respond when we don't feel listened to the way that we want to feel listened to or, you know, heard that we want to be heard. And it's, we ask for the need and it doesn't get, um, returned or expressed or manifested the way that we would, we would hope. And then we're let down. And then what does that do to us? Yeah. And then like, are we going to keep orienting to a lack of change from the same way? Like yeah. if you keep trying to get someone to change and they keep not changing, then you need to change how you orient to that. And that's usually yeah. the growth. That's usually the change. That's usually the transformation. It's like, if you were to be an adult in a relationship, first off, adults don't chase people. Adults also don't ghost. Right. Adults stand still, get clear about what their needs and expectations are. They create a space to hear that from their partner. They decide if they're going to actually be able to fulfill those things. And then they create a plan. Yeah. But most of us yeah. are not adults in a relationship. Yeah. Well, we relationships, relationships draw out the aspects of ourselves where we haven't matured yet. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, the function totally. of, of, of relationship from like a, I don't know, like a metaphysical lens. Yeah, I agree. I feel like, like a spiritual I, I feel, purpose. I feel like, there, like there's an analogy of, of healing. You know, you don't need to like will a cut to heal. You just get cut and you kind of, you know, try to yeah. not allow it to get too humid or too dirty. Or you just kind of create the, the environment for it to heal. And it seems like a lot of these potential wounds or traumas or conflicts or ripples that we may experience from childhood we're going to continue our lives seeking out the exact person, place, thing, event happening to hit us right in that spot in order to heal. And it's actually this subconscious intelligence that's seeking to heal this part within ourselves. And we'll just keep on doing that. And we'll keep on running ourselves into the exact same relationship, the exact same wall, the exact same pain until we actually get to the root and extract you know, that, that thorn or whatever metaphor works for you. And I, I feel like that's, and, and, and I think there actually is a, a physiological function in that as well, because if we're experiencing anxiety or depression or loneliness or any of that, it has physiological consequence, immediate physiological yeah. consequence. And it makes us less healthy people and it reduces our libido and reduces our potential to procreate and perpetuate the species and all of that. And so I think there's actually a subconscious intelligence that's driving us into these very particular relationship patterns in order to address that so that we can actually heal at a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual level. I totally agree. I think like everything that's happening in our life, especially relationally, but in general, is an invitation to rise to the best possible version of you. And, you know, you can either see the areas that you need to grow as evidence of your brokenness, or you can see it as evidence of your potential. You know, they're, those, they're the exact same circumstances, just oriented to differently. And, yeah. and that's what an opportunity that is. Because I think I agree with you from a spiritual perspective, if we look at it that way, we can either see that it's brought into our life to change us or it's not. One's helpful and the other one's not. And that's okay. I don't care what someone chooses. You just like, you might as well choose the one that orients to growth. And I love the overlay to physiology, because if you look at 
high conflict couples, even when they're not in conflict and they put physiological measurements on them, their bodies are dysregulated. It's like they're sitting beside a tiger and they're not in conflict. But, you know, and also they did a study where they gave a punct, they did a puncture on the people's arms and the people in high conflict relationships healed slower. So, you know, you think of the correlation of high conflict relationships to things like leaky gut, you know, and, and you talked about anxiety, depression, Anxiety and depression at the basis of those things, anxiety is really an inhibitory emotion. So it's like when I'm not expressing one of my core emotions, one or more of them, then the let's say grief wasn't allowed when I was a kid or rage wasn't, I might experience anxiety because I'm not safe to do the one thing. So I'll, it'll express through as anxiety. Society has taught us that if you have anxiety or depression, something is wrong with you not something's wrong with your environment. You inherited it from your mom. No, you inherited the behavior patterns from your mom that create that. And so to me, whenever anyone's navigating those things, I'm like, how? what does your environment feel like? What does not feel good in your environment? To me, healing is really not that complex. It's what do you value? And if you can't figure that out, just look at the people you admire because that they exude values that you want to have. And then look at your life. What's in alignment with my values and what's not? You know, in our podcast that I did with you, you talked about like, you could go out and buy red light bulbs. And all of a sudden you're the type of person who buys red light bulbs. And now that seems like such a seemingly unimportant detail, but it's actually everything. Because at the baseline is, you're starting to change who you are and starting to stack those changes. Yeah, build momentum. Exactly. And if all of a sudden you say, I'm going to design my life around what I value and the things that can't fit in, I'm going to invite to change to align. And if they can't, I'm going to wish them goodbye with love. Yeah, You'll feel liberated. Not to mention your body will get lighter, you know, all the things. It's like, yeah. it's so fascinating how it feels like it's some sort of uh, pseudoscience to say that the heart and the body and the emotions are all connected. Like that, I used to work as a pharmaceutical rep, and I remember when the microbiome and gastroenterology was considered total bullshit. Yep. Like it's just wild to me that we don't realize that trauma and the nervous system are at the core of so many things. Well, typically the people with that perspective oftentimes would would be the most, um, perhaps be holding the most like unaddressed trauma. Not always, obviously, uh, but someone that leans very heavily into science and doesn't want to listen to anything that's not measurable, manageable, holdable, tangible. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to touch if it's if it's not if it's anything that I can't hold in my hand, I don't want to touch it, I don't want to hear about it. If there's not a double blind study, like you know, yeah. I'm out of it. Yeah, exactly. That's very rational mind. That's very I have issues with trust. You know, and if I can't if you don't I don't have perfect evidence, then I'm not willing to lean into that. Yeah, you know, and how you do anything is how you do everything. That will probably trickle into some of those other parts. They might it might be some some hardness around some of the, you know, the soft skills of emotional vulnerability. <laughs> like, how do you measure that? Right, right. Especially because <laughs> emotions aren't measurable, tangible. Although we could try. Yeah. yeah. So, so, what, so, oh, yeah, go. go ahead. Are you, no, 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 go ahead. I, I keep. Right. Well, so, ahead. The, so the the functional medicine thing because I, I feel like sometimes it's supportive to have a particular direction in conversations like this, particularly because yeah. we don't, you know, I we could, we go in so many different places, but I think particularly around like 
getting to the root of conflict because I think it's so common. Yeah. And however, whatever the half of marriages break up, you know, I don't know what the percentage of marriages that be ha- are actually like reported happy. I don't know how you'd actually measure that because who the hell fills out? Um, yeah. Not happy couples. There's a bias yeah, exactly. for all that research. <laughs> so I don't know? trust a survey because I never personally would never fill out a survey. So I'm like, who are no. the freaking people that are doing it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's something that I heard, I was reminded by you uh, about Gabor Mate, his suggestions like this, like the two primal needs of any person was, uh, what was it? It was, it was uh, authenticity and self-expression. Yeah. Self-expression. Okay. And yeah, and there was, belonging. I wrote it, I wrote it down the thing that you said, it wasn't authenticity. It was, uh, oh, it's belonging. belonging. Yeah. Belonging, self-expression, authenticity and belonging. Self-expression, authenticity and belonging. So functional medicine approach, conflict in relationship. If there is a deeper pattern that's happening in there, would there be something in that space? I don't feel self-expressed in this relationship. So I end up responding with maybe some kind of anger. I don't feel like I belong. I don't trust your level of commitment. I don't trust your word. Uh, I don't trust your integrity. And so I'm going to respond by getting XYZ reactive behavior. Uh, yeah. I don't feel like I can be authentic in this relationship because I feel like maybe you might judge me. You won't accept me if I'm fully authentic. So therefore that translates into this depressed type behavior, you know, where I'm, I, I feel a little bit, uh, maybe more suffocated in the relationship. And eventually that translates into reactive behavior. Is there something to that? Yeah. I mean, if at the basis of our relationships, we don't feel safe to be ourselves, you know, that's one of the greatest predictors of the health of a corporate culture is, am I safe to be myself and psychological safety? I mean, that's the basis of communities, families. And I would, I would argue that the majority of families and communities, you know, there is some level of self-abandonment that we learn in order to fit in. You know, there's a certain level of self-silencing that we learn. Some people learn total self-erasure in order to be safe. And so when we are in adult relationships, they actually require all of us. They require our voice. They require our feedback. But if we grew up in relationships where that wasn't modeled for us, we might never, we might struggle to use our voice. And if you look at more of the framework from like a heteronormative perspective, Usually men are used to being framed as the one with the voice and women are the framed as the ones without it. But you can also have the other side of that, which is that in in response to feminism and the attack on the patriarchy, which, you know, all viable things, it's like a lot of men actually never wanted to become like their fathers or become like toxic masculinity, quote unquote. But really toxic masculinity is just unintegrated pain it's like someone who's just not integrated their suffering you know it's how a a traumatized human will express no matter their gender you know but at what you're saying from a functional medicine perspective is is totally there in that like if my self-expression threatens belonging belonging will usually win so humans orient around their community. And that means they will often negate their own internal wisdom and self-expression in order to stay safe in a tribe. You especially see that now ideologically with things like politics, COVID vaccine, like insert the, the hot topic button thing that, 
And cancel culture has made it so people don't feel safe to self-express because a, a mob will come after them. And you were talking about the physiological consequence of that. I mean, it's devastating. I believe it's uh, the experience of feeling lonely is the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes, 18 a, day. cigarettes a day or whatever. Yeah. 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 So that's like, it tells you on a very real level, if you think, if you sharing your truth means you're going to compromise a relationship, you generally won't till you do till you can't put up with it anymore, which is really codependency. Codependency at the core of it is that I'm willing to abandon myself to maintain the relationship. And so if all of a sudden a relationship is oriented around you claiming yourself and coming most alive, that's totally different. And because that's going to be scary for everybody, because that's not what we see. That's not what's modeled, you know, and now we're having conversations about that. I just love how you correlate it back to physiology, because to me, it's like, how can your body be in really good health when your relationships are not? Yeah, there's, there's more John Gottman stuff. I was like, doing a bunch of research on him last night and listening to some of his videos and whatnot. And he has one of the things he, he mentions like the, I don't he calls it like the magical pyramid of relationship and it's physiological calm, trust and commitment. And if you have those, and it's interesting because physiological calm will naturally transpire. Oh, oops. Sorry. There's a truck going by. Will naturally transpire typically as a product of developing, cultivating trust and commitment within the relationship yeah. and within yourself. Yeah. yeah. And that's I, I wonder from your possible. perspective, like what are the, cause a lot of this can become of the mind and it can become pedantic and uh, yeah. you can know all of the names of the authors and all of the pyramids and all of the structures <laughs> yeah. and all the things, yeah. but how does it actually come into application? So for example, if there has been some micro or macro trust broken in a relationship or, you know, just that for a, spe a specific example, What's the process in starting to actually come back into union, come back into love, feeling safe to open your heart to your partner? Yeah, that question you asked earlier of atonement, you know, it's like, how do we atone for that? How do we repair ruptures? Because they're going to happen. You know, all relationships are going to have ruptures. If it's things like, you know, infidelity, then, you know, there has to be certain boundaries set around there has to be the acknowledgement of the rupture there has to be absolute truth about the rupture the impact of the rupture and then there has to be boundaries around what would healing look like for me you know a lot of the time uh there's not a lot of clarity on what would it actually look like i see this with breakups too when people go through breakups they're not they don't prioritize their own healing. They stay in contact with the person. They, they are not sure whether they're getting back together or not. Like there's not a seeking of clarity. So if, if they're not going to give you clarity, you create clarity, no matter what it is. So if there's a rupture, there has to be, it has to be laid at the, at the altar of the relationship. Sometimes some of these things require a separate person to be able to navigate because it can be hard for a couple to, stay regulated as that's happening. That's why a good coach or therapist is essential for some things like infidelity, let's say, for example. But when a couple can learn to lay it at the, at the altar of the relationship, and then how did this impact you? What would you need from me in order to restore trust in this? What would that look like? What would it sound like? Like getting really specific. As you said, like we can know all the pyramids and know all the things, but to actually live them is totally different. And I think we need specificity because, you know, 
my partner's love language might be gifts, but I'm like, what kind of gift? What would it, you know, what do you actually want? You know, it's like yep. we can get very specific. Like, what does it sound like to be affirmed for you? And saying to someone like, what do you need to hear from me in that, in this moment? Right. And then actually saying it. You know, I think one yeah. thing about being a guy, I'm curious your uh, thoughts on this, is like, because we're so oriented to fix, we don't even ask sometimes what fixing would, <laughs> would be like, yeah. which would be so much faster. Let's be honest. But now, I have way, to be reminded. It's not the way feminine energy in quotation works. I just come to <laughs> <Right>. accept it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's exactly. not the way it works. <laughs> yeah. It's like the mystery. The my- Can we not have a mystery just for a second? Just give me <laughs> just the actual. 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The beauty, the beauty of it. You know? Yeah. I think that's I kind of I'll... the cool part of it. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I... I, no, I wanted. I wanted to. I, I keep interrupting you. You keep apologizing. I'm not. I'm, I'm Canadian. This is how. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I, uh, something I. I be. I think it's another important thing. I'm curious your perspective on. Um, and then we can wrap up soon as well. Do you have a, a hard out? I don't want to. I don't want to. No, no, I don't. Okay, you're I don't have one until cool. three. We're, there's. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go on a little sunset surf scenario here in a bit. We've got about an hour till. Till sunset, thankfully. Yeah, that'll um, be beautiful. But transitioning from victimhood and identifying as a victim in a relationship mm-hmm. or in one's life to accountability and responsibility, what is the roadmap of that transition of a person that actually um, craves and prefers responsibility and accountability as opposed to pointing fingers and passing the buck to somebody else's responsibility? Well, at the basis of all successful relationships, there can't be someone who operates in victimhood because it's an inherent power dynamic. It presents as powerlessness, but it's actually the inverse exploitation of power. So if you present as powerless, then that means your identity has to be formulated around that. So you're going to hold on to a self-identity of woundedness. And if your self-identity is woundedness and you source power from it, uh, victimization, then you're not going to let go and heal because then you have to give away the way you know to get power. So in order to even do that, you have to accept what are the benefits you get by holding on. What, in what, what are the indirect and direct ways that you source safety and power and security from holding on to this? There is no way that two adults can create a successful relationship when one or both people are in that. It's impossible because no two adults can create a successful life for themselves and with another person without accountability and responsibility. So there's that first part is you just have to have a come to Jesus conversation with yourself about who you actually are and how you exploit power. Now, what I often hear in response to what I'm saying, which is you can be the victim of things in your life, but people will say that's victim blaming. What I'm saying is like, you can have experiences in your life that are not your fault. A lot of experiences in your life are not going to be your fault. They're going to be actually at the hands of other people. But you can control how you orient to what happened. You can control what you create from what happened. You can't change the past. That's just a fact. But you can change how you use it. Like, 
can you use that experience to come fully alive? Can you use it to become the wisest possible version of you? Can you use the pain to actually source power and stepping up? Hmm. And so I'd say the roadmap one is, yes, that come to Jesus conversation of accepting it. Two, how do you source it from it? How are you going to change it? What are you going to use this energy to create? Because from there, you know, I remember hearing um, Alan Watts say, that when you wake up to conscious choice, you become the God you were taught to praise. Hmm. And I love that because it's so simple. I know too, like religious minds that can feel like uh, a bit, uh, I guess of a, I'm, I'm breaking a rule of religion. But what I love about it is it's like, yes, actually through sovereignty, through the ability to choose one's response to anything, you create your life. You create the relationships you desire. You create everything you desire. If you do that, you also have to process the grief that you haven't been doing that. Just like when you love somebody and you open more and more up, you are at the exact same time holding the grief of losing them. So yeah. you have to increase your capacity to lose somebody to love them because they're happening at the exact same time. And so I think all of this is just so correlated because it's like, I think people like David Goggins serve so much good in this perspective because they're like, what kind of life do you want? And he says motherfucker a lot in that, but it, <laughs> there's a truth to it, right? There's like a truth to it. You know, I don't know that you need to run as much as him, but there is like a truth to deciding that you're going to create for your life and that life is fragile. Yeah, because you know, if you look back on your life, you know that work from uh, Bronnie Ware, "The Five Regrets of the Dying." Um, she was a palliative care nurse. None of them are about work; they're all about relationships, emotion, healing, connection. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's an immense amount of power in coming from that lens of uh, how does this serve me? This this mm -hmm. pattern, particularly like whatever the thing is, anger. How mm -hmm. does it serve me? Protection. You know, like, like anxiety, yeah. how does it serve me? Like, like the, the, the victim thing, like what is that, what is the actual functionality of this as a tool and how has it protected me and supported me and actually kept me alive? And now maybe it's just a story of it keeps me alive and it's actually becoming, you know, it's like the, the story of the, the raft that you use to get across the river and then you keep you fall in love with the raft and you think it's protecting you and you kind of carry the raft with you through the woods forever and it's it's just a really inconvenient nuisance, but you don't want to let it go because at one point it served you at one point it saved mm. your life. And so to be able to come into that, I, th I feel like all of the cliche new age stuff of like, love is the way and love is the answer and love heals. And, and that, I think there's something to that, even with these inconvenient patterns that you might express in a relationship of, of like, how can I love this pattern and actually say, thank you to this pattern. Yeah. And really like invite the pattern in and get to know, like, I want to learn more about this thing. This is, it's wreaked havoc in my relationship, but it's actually serving me and going to like the functional medicine concept again, it'd be like, okay, how is this, um, atherosclerosis actually a protective measure for my body? How is this inflammation actually a protective measure for my body? How is holding on to fat? My body's actually trying to protect me based off of the environmental conditions that I'm, I'm steeped in. And it has the perfect response to be on my team to keep me alive. And so I can actually thank all of these symptoms and invite them in and get to know them. And then from there, I develop compassion 
for the things that are the hardest to have compassion for. Beautiful. I agree. There's a, the, in order to change a pattern, you have to soften your relationship to it. Yeah. Because you know, as you're saying, it served you till now. Yeah. I think that real turning point is the, is the essence of it all though. Is like, can you let it go? Like, can you realize it doesn't serve you anymore? And there is a, a better behavior that's being invited to grow from you, to grow through you. And that's where I think um, the word shame is very loaded, but I think there is an actual element of healthy shame. And that's the recognition that we have a better behavior available to us. And, and then it serves a purpose because now it's actually saying, hey, hey, you can't do this anymore. It's not a mistake, it's a choice and it's hurting you. And so like, unless, if we start to orient to our, because sometimes our partner is the pathway for our motivation to start to restore what's sacred in our lives. And if we turn to our partner as a sacred being, then we have to turn to ourselves as a sacred being. And I think when we can actually look to our partner from that place of reverence, there's just such a, because like, I don't want to hurt my partner. I don't want my behaviors that get unchecked lead to also my son learning unchecked unhealthy behaviors. I can use my love for them as motivation to finally change something. And, and I don't know there's anything more potent. That's why I think things like movement are such a gateway to all of this because you start to see what you're capable of. You get immediate yep. feedback from movement and nutrition. You don't yep. get immediate feedback from boundaries. Yep. Sometimes you do because people don't like the boundary. But I just yep. mean like from a self-worth perspective, it takes a bit. But when you start eating really healthy food, it's instant. Yeah. You also move yourself into defensive patterns or depressed patterns. Like de depression, there's a, a, a like a structural translation of depression, just collapsed. Yeah. You know, or anxious. My, yeah. my shoulders are jacked up to my ears. Everything's clenched. I'm clenching my jaw. Maybe my vocal cords start to, to start to narrow and contract. My voice gets higher. I start talking faster. It's all structural postural expressions of, of these emotive states or these like these translations of emotions. And so something like interpretive dance or improvisation or any kind of dance. I mean, I don't know why I said interpretive dance, but just like dance, movement, expression. <laughs> it like it opens you it opens you up out of the, the mold of who you thought you were, which is why dancing yeah. is typically terrifying for people because it might it might move you into some position that you don't you don't know if that's me or not. I don't I don't I don't really know how to trust that. And then when you start to maybe develop a feeling of oh I feel safe because other people are dancing. I feel safe because yeah. I'm drunk. You know, I've let, I've released my inhibitions. I can finally be myself because I'm drunk enough. I can finally like, oh, I can say what I've wanted to say. I can move the way I wanted to move. I can allow in some flexibility to change away from the anchor of the safety of what I was, even if that was being in an abusive relationship or yeah. getting myself into debt or getting myself like, like eating food that's toxic or bad for me or making quote unquote bad decisions. But they've they've been survival-based decisions that have proved themselves to keep me alive today. So why would I possibly change? Right. And movement is an interesting example of that. If you can actually start to, you know, move yourself into different personality expressions and you're like, Oh, wow, I didn't know I could move like this. And but if I move <laughs> right? like this, how do I communicate? And how do people perceive me? And how do I perceive myself? It's like a, it can be a, a nice little, like, you know, backdoor entrance into the emotional, emotional self.
Yeah, I think it could be safe for men too to start there. Obviously, that's true for anybody, but I think especially for men that they start to move through things. Oh, like, yeah. That's why it's like if Joe Rogan is getting more men to work out and do breath work and meditate and do cold plunging, great. Cool. I listen to Joe Rogan. Love it. It's like yeah. someone said to me the other day, that's a red flag. I was like, wait, you can listen to something and decide if every part of it is for you. Like, I think it's so fascinating, the judgments that are made about a man who listens to Joe Rogan. The simplicity of that just tells me the dismissive nature of the person making that claim. Yeah, It's like, have you ever listened to an episode? No. Ah. Yeah. 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 Well, but I think, you know, it's- Parody yeah. is funny as well. You know, it's making, I think like having the ability to make light of all the stupid shit that you do and also- deeply respect it and have reverence. Right, right. Parody is you know? so important. I mean, levity, how else do you bring opening to the ridiculous of life, the ridiculousness of life and the pain without yeah. also laughing at the stupid shit we do? Well, there's, a, there's like, I think there's a cycle with humor and being able to make light of things. There's the compensatory strategy, the protective joker. That's like, I'm still actually in pain, but I'm going to mask it with jokes. And then you can come through and start to integrate said pain or whatever the thing is. And then within that, there might be some seriousness or some melancholy or like the feeling of emotions. Mm -hmm. And then there's a higher level of jokes where it's actually coming from a place of, of integration. And then suddenly the whole world becomes a joke again. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a beautiful journey. I use sarcasm and humor to avoid being seen. And then, Now I just, I mean, I think it's so important that we laugh. Oh, man. And laughing is healing. Oh, it's so you're good. It's one of the greatest you're, predictors you're, of you're good toning, conflict. You're... Good conflict resolution, people who have good sense of humor, it's not, as long as it's not what you were saying, deflective or compensatory, right. but rather just a way that we like find a moment of light in the, in the yeah. hard, in the heavy. Yeah, you can have a pretty light. There's, there's also like the maniacal kind of passive aggressive laugh kind of like sometimes violent nonviolent communication is like wildly violent communication yeah. <laughs> it's just masked <laughs> not saying oh words. man like the therapeutic <laughs> language that can be weaponized too like we're <laughs> when people master that yeah that's a whole that's a whole other podcast yeah well i really appreciate you man i i, I um i really I, I value conversations like this i think they're in a lot of ways I don't know, the most important, you know, if your if your relationship is in a place of chaos, it's probably gonna be hard for you to be effective in anything else that you're doing. If your relationship with yourself is in chaos, you know, in general, I feel like that's, it's foundational for so many things. So I appreciate you um, investing your, you know, yourself and your life and your time and your energy and to be able to go into the different dark cavernous holes of this and be able to extract meaningful meaningful wisdom for us appreciate it man. Mm. well thank you so much i appreciate you and thanks for trusting me with your audience and for you listening thanks yeah. for exchanging your time to listen yeah to me. what's um so you have a book coming up in april but people this is going to come out before that is there if people want to learn more about your stuff or just go deeper into your work do you have a like like where's a good place to point people from here uh you can go to create the love.com and that has all my courses so i have like breakup courses, uh, using dating as a healing process. I have one called rediscover your wholeness. That's all about self, um, and changing these, all of them orient around changing that core 
belief, that fundamental thing we chase, uh, just the pathway to it looking different depending on people's circumstances. And then I have a podcast, which you were just on, where I interview people who are experts basically at anything we're relationship in relationship with that invites mastery. And um, yeah, our book is called Liberated Love, and it comes out in April, and you can get it at liberated-love.com. And we're going to have some, my wife and I wrote it together, and we're going to have some workshops coming up that people can attend uh, if they just pre-order the book. So it'll be great. Cool. Amazing, yeah. man. Thanks well, for thanks having me. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. I'm going to go surf, thankfully. Uh, I'm going to hear about it. Send me a picture. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look forward to having you back in uh, April time if you're open to it. Love to, to get to actually yeah, like, read the I book and turn I love on. that. Yeah, and I'll get my All wife right. on too. That'll be fun. Oh, that'll be fun. I like this. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, Thank you, Mark. Thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all. I'll see you next week. For tuning in, if you want to see the video version of that, you can see my place here in Costa Rica. That's where I recorded this conversation from. And uh, we have the videos for all of these episodes, as well as instructional content over at Align Podcast on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe over there. And uh, thank you once again for subscribing here. Thanks for leaving reviews. Thanks for joining you. I will see you next week.